So it is September 14th. It is 2014. Our message today is called Displaying His Splendor. Our topic will come largely from this scripture that we'll start with. It's Matthew 16 and 26. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? This is one of those scriptures we've heard quoted many times. But what an awesome thing, what a profound thing to contemplate. If you think about exchanging, you give or transfer items in consideration of their value for something equivalent. How many of you ladies bought something this week? Teresa, what'd you buy? Fall decorations. And praise God, fall's arrived since the air conditioners quit on us this morning, right? Let's just for a moment say that you bought fall decorations and maybe is a ficus a tree or a plant? You got a ficus tree and you're really excited and you paid $7 for it. Can you go exchange your $7 ficus tree for a $500 palm tree? Why not? Let's suppose that you had, I don't know, a Springfield Armory 45 worth about 600 bucks. Can you go exchange it for a Kimberlake worth maybe $1,000? Why not? When we exchange things, we exchange things that are of equivalent value. You buy a $35 sweater, you take it back to the store and get store credit. How much do you get? What do you have that's worth what your soul is? Is that not worth thinking about? What could you possibly give in exchange for your soul? This was meant to create a feeling. Jesus asked a question. There's a question mark on this. What good will it be if a man gains the whole world yet forfeits his own soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If you're sitting in the crowd, how do you answer? Or do you sit in silence and hope that someone else answers the question? The other utter disparity between the worth of the eternal and the worth of the temporal ought to cause us to feel a certain way. If you sit and contemplate on this, if we silenced our hearts, if we silenced our expectations for this service and you just got on your knees and contemplated this question, how poor would you begin to feel? If the point was to save your soul, What do you have in any way, shape, or form that could contribute to the saving of a soul? In Matthew 5, starting in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why are the poor in spirit the recipients of the kingdom of heaven? Because they've answered this question. In recognizing their utter desolation, it makes room for God to make up the difference. There is no worse feeling in the world than the spiritually entitled. Those that believe that they're inherently good people, despite all evidence to the contrary, when attempting to prove a doctrine like original sin, if someone will not look in the Word, if that is not authoritative in their mind, you would think they could look in the world around them. Who have you ever known for a length of time that did not display qualities that you wish they didn't have. If you were dating someone and you've not yet seen those qualities, you've not dated long enough. You give any human being enough time and an evil inclination comes out of our hearts. It oozes out of our pores. Selfishness is how we were conceived. It's part of our being. And yet, one of the great defenses against the gospel is why would I even need to be saved? Aren't we all pretty good people? I tried to do what's right. How many of you heard those words? I tried to do what's right. It should be incumbent upon the person to answer their own question. How are you doing? Well, I think I'm pretty good. Would your neighbor describe you as good? Would your wife describe your conversation with her yesterday as good? If we looked at your HBO account, would it describe you 
as good. There is a blessedness that comes from knowing our true state. As we begin to recognize and deal with our utter poverty, our inability to give anything in exchange for our souls, it allows something to happen. In 1 Samuel 2, there was a barren woman named Hannah. Hannah was unable to have children. And she had a priest that didn't understand her. A husband that loved her but didn't get her. And women who mocked her. And listen to what Hannah took away from the situation. She says in chapter 2, in verse 6, The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ashes heap. He sits them with princes and He has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. When faced with a problem that you are incapable of solving, there is a blessing. As long as your life remains within your grasp, within your abilities... It's easy to become deceived. I think for this reason, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. When they need something, they buy it. When they want something, they get it. It's very difficult to see the need for a Savior when you are pretty confident that you're doing just fine. Maybe your bumper sticker says, business is wonderful, life's terrific, and people are great. It might as well say, I am deceived. A couple of world wars have shown us clearly that the world is not in good shape. We quote John 3.16 at our ball games. And at the very same ball games, we lift up men as idols in the place of Jesus. We're disappointed if we find out they beat their wives when no one is looking, but we don't mind unless it becomes public. You can admire a man for his golf swing and then find out he's a serial adulterer. Punish him by losing his sponsors. The question is not, why do the corporations support these men? The question is, why would we? Our love affair with the world has disguised our poverty of spirit. If you had no TV to entertain you tonight, if you had no radio to sing into your ear, if you could not after church pick anywhere that you wanted to go eat, any kind of food that you wanted, the kind of delicacies that were not available to kings a hundred years ago, the variety that we face is entertainment in and of itself. If you had none of those things, If you were looking at an empty cupboard, a hot house and a dirt floor, or maybe no house, if drinking water was your problem, it might be easier to see your utter poverty. You shake things up just a little bit in the American church. Have no air conditioners on a Sunday. And it's amazing how the flesh speaks. It's amazing how comfortable that we can become. Hannah understood something and she could only get it one way. She had to hurt for it. She had to fight for it. She had to strive for it. This is why the Bible says, do not despise discipline, my son. This is why the Bible encourages Christians to persevere in adversity. When she had to hurt for a child, when she longed for it, when people thought she was drunk and she was actually praying, when she was ridiculed and mocked, She found out something about the character of God. He lifts up the lowly. It's the poor that He takes out of the dust. When we say poor, I've preached so many times about what real poverty is and the poor that we've seen of the world. But this morning we ought to think of a poverty of spirit. When we're pretty sure that everything is okay, 
We tend not to look too deeply at our lives. In fact, when's the last time somebody asked you how you were doing and you told them the truth? Think of the glaring contradiction. Hey, how you doing? I'm not blessed. And then they walk off not blessed. Are we so comfortable with lying? Have we become so... Or is it that you understand yet another truth? The person who asked you didn't really care. It's just social graces. Which is worse? Lying about your condition or asking someone about their condition and you really don't care? The Hebrew greeting was shalom. On a beautiful Sabbath day, the response might be Shabbat shalom or shalom shalom. It was both a question and an answer. Incidentally, poverty of spirit is both a question and the answer. When we recognize what we don't have, that we literally bring nothing to the table to barter with, the Lord seems to like this. Turn with me to Matthew 9. When you get to verse 9, say, I'm there, and I want to show you a picture before we read it. What you're staring at is about as much water burger as you can fit into a bag. And I happen to have left it at the foot of my bed. And my little dachshund got to eat a triple cheeseburger, a 44-ounce milkshake, and an extra-large fry. It seems he's so concerned about my cardiac health that he's pinch-hitting for me. And if you walked in the room and you said, Winston, what are you doing? He would cower. The truth is, he would cower and leave a puddle on the floor. Being caught in sin is a terrible thing. But I didn't catch him in sin. This is not in my room. This is at the foyer of my house. Winston stole this while we were outside. And I got on a phone call, as pastors do, and that phone call ended with another phone call and ended with another phone call. And a couple hours passed. And what seemed like such a good idea to Winston at the time, Master's delaying in his return. I can partake of the delicacies that are all around me. Became a snare to him. And if you can't see it in the picture, Winston's got a long skinny nose, but a big fat head. And he stuck his head in the bag, but he was not able to get his head back out of the bag. As First Peter says, he became entangled in his sin. He became ensnared in his sin. It makes me want to kick Winston sometimes. But it does something that's so endearing. And my God, could we learn from a dog today? Winston didn't run and hide when I came in the door. He had struggled with his sin long enough that he ran to his master and asked to be free. He ran to me and fell at my feet because he was unable to free himself from what he had been entangled in. Friends, even my wiener dog has poverty of spirit at times. He understood that he was trafficking in things that would ultimately kill him. He understood that he was utterly incapable of freeing himself. He understood that there was only one who might have mercy on him. Had this been Judah, Judah would have simply hung him from the Walmart bag. Had this been Abby, she would have laughed and taken pictures. But it came to one who would free him from his sin. Church, could we learn from a wiener dog today? In Matthew 9, in verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. How many of you love the tax man? We even have a CPA in our midst today, and I doubt he loves the tax man. What a strange person to call. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. What made a tax collector follow Jesus? Well, many of the most learned 
and most religious, the most seemingly upright, those with it all together, stood at a different distance and asked questions and mocked and ridiculed and scorned and were jealous. What made the tax collector go and follow him? While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. What an interesting thing. Tax collectors hung around other tax collectors. You know, who you hang out with does say a lot about you, doesn't it? I want to tell you the truth, a solemn word from the living God. If you want to be holy, you need to hang out with those who are striving to be holy. None of you, I'm aware of all of your lives in here. None of you are strong enough to separate yourself from the body of Christ. Go behind enemy lines and stay there. And if this is the first few years of your salvation, don't let it become a death trait that you think you can get your head in a bag. You might not be able to get it out. More professions of faith have become professions of hypocrisy because men thought they were stronger than they were. They thought that they could go back and rescue those when they were not completely free themselves. They thought that they were strong enough to give someone a helping hand up when they had not yet learned to walk on their own two feet. How many of you in here expect Riley to save you today? You have expectations of Riley that she loved her mother, that she loved her father, that she exists and grow. But one day our expectations of her will grow. Hear me, new Christian. Our expectations of you will grow. But right now you're supposed to get strong in the faith. And it would be death for you to think that you were stronger than you are. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. As profound as the statement is, what could a man give in exchange for his soul? It's at least equally profound that our God does not desire a payment from you. He was never looking for sacrifice. In fact, the entire sacrificial system was to teach you about the mercy of God. To teach you about your utter depravity, His utter righteousness, and His desire to bridge the gap between you. I desire mercy, he says, and not sacrifice. Why would Jesus eat with sinners? Because our king came for the poor. Our king came for the sinners. Our king came for the ones that knew they were unhealthy. Our king never came for those that thought they were doing just fine. Perhaps we might look at Isaiah 61 in a new light then. Say there when you were there. Be in Isaiah 61 and verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Who is me in this? Well, in... 720 B.C., me is Isaiah. Of course, somewhere around 30 A.D., me is Jesus. Who is me today? Well, we sing it in our worship. We said the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news. We sang it today. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to... Have you ever wondered why so much witnessing is ineffective? Have you ever wondered why, despite years of dealing with someone, you see no movement? The good news is for those who are poor in spirit. The good news is for those who know they need good news. The good news is for those who are broken by their circumstances and understand that they have nothing to offer God. So often we're trying to give medicine to someone who doesn't believe they're sick. So often we want them to be saved. 
when they have no desire to be saved. In short, we would love the kingdom without repentance. In short, as long as it removes penalty for the people we love, then we would accept it, but God will not. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. Are we only talking about those who are economically oppressed? If it was only those who were economically oppressed, then how do we have a man like Joseph the Levite who became Barnabas receiving the good news? The first thing that he did was he laid down his wealth and his possessions at the feet of the apostles. If the good news was only for those who had nothing, then how did the early church sustain itself? Sustained itself as they shared the possessions that they had. There's nothing inherently spiritual, spiritual about having no clothes or no food. There's something inherently spiritual about recognizing your nakedness before God. In fact, doesn't that, isn't that where the human story begins, really? When man and woman realize that they are naked before their God. And they need Him to provide for them a covering. They have a great need. And they have nothing to give in exchange for it. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim freedom for the captives. And release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of despair. And there we have it. Those that are broken. Those that are captive. Those that are prisoners. Those who mourn. These are those that God can deal with. So what is the answer? Do you go become arrested? Go turn yourself in. You know, we have two real problems even among us in this body. We have those who mourn and will not be healed. And we have those who say they're healed and should mourn. Neither one are holy. Neither one glorify God. The man who is wrecked by a state entrusts God to change it. Oh, this is something special. A garment of praise instead of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. There's something in the nature of our God that desires to give mercy. He looks at those with ashes. He looks at those that are in mourning, those who are in despair. And He will give you in exchange for your ashes, beauty. He will give you in exchange for your mourning, gladness. He will give you in exchange for your despair, a garment of praise. Would it not be reasonable to assume that if all of us were lost, and you met someone, and you saw them dwelling in ashes, dwelling in mourning, and dwelling in despair, that they were not yet born again? That they had not yet made the very great exchange? But the good news is they should be close. If your life looks like ashes to you, if you're mourning over something, if despair is creeping up upon you, shame on me and Christians like me that have looked and said, just get the victory. You're utterly incapable of getting the victory. And that's the point. In poverty of spirit, God will make an exchange with you that you don't deserve. In poverty of spirit, the living God will look at you and say, 
your ashes, and I know your ashes. And because you know that your ashes, watch, I'll make something beautiful out of you. I want to tell you there is no glory in being ashes. None. It's simply the starting place. And if you've reached that starting place, then God gets glory for every day that you let Him make you beautiful. But there is nothing beautiful about claiming to be in the Lord and dwelling in ashes. It's a starting place. The living God has the right to plant you for the displaying of His splendor. Many times He gets us in a great exchange. An exchange that the disparity is so great that you would think he couldn't count. You would think that we were tricksters. But then the Bible story is about taking tricksters and making them princes with God, is it not? I assure you, you didn't beat God in the great bargain. It's because you didn't try. It's because you knew your true condition that you come to him, he will make you into something more. What does he get out of the deal, though? What is his ulterior motive? I mean, if you had nothing to offer him, what does he get out of it? What a great question. What does God get out of it? This might be the most convicting thing that I've ever had to think on. If I have nothing of worth to bring my God... If that is both the answer and the problem. Lord, I have nothing of worth to bring you. And that, that is my poverty of spirit. But in it, I find the Lord's mercy because that's what he always desired to give. Then still, what would be his motive? Let's reflect on a couple of very simple scriptures with each other today. And while we do, ask yourself. Am I giving the Lord His due? Matthew 5 and verse 16. For these handful, you can go with me in the Word or you can read them on the screen. I don't want you to lose this point. You brought Him ashes, mourning and despair. But you were supposed to receive from Him beauty, gladness and praise. And the difference between those two things is supposed to display His splendor. When you recognize and the whole world recognizes that you are ashes, mourning and despair, and yet He has given you beauty, gladness and praise, it's supposed to display His splendor. Now think on this. Matthew 5 and 16. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. If it's clear that you are ashes, if it's clear that you are mourning, that you are despair, and yet the world around you begins to see something coming out of you that could never have originated with you, they begin to see beauty. If they begin to see praise, if they begin to see something more in you, who do they praise? Your Father in heaven. So let me ask you, Christian, is your life giving Him His due? He had no motive to buy you. We say, well, the Lord so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son and we glory in the verse. Have you ever considered that He so loved the entire planet that He gave His Son in exchange? We love to say, so love me, so love me, so love me. And it is all true. I'm not denying it. But what if he had more than just you on his mind? In the American gospel, we love to talk about he would have died for just me. But let's face the fact, he didn't. He died for them too. And when he saved you, did he have an ulterior motive? Yes. He saved you that you might display His glory. Are you giving Him the chance? When people can see the disparity 
between what you are in the flesh and what He has made you in the Spirit, it displays His glory. How important is it that we walk in the Spirit? How important is it that we put away mourning and despair? How important is it that we're anointed with the oil of gladness? That we show them the beauty of the Lord? This was never just about you. It can never be just about you. In the moment we make it just about you, then we've become as idolatrous as you already know so many are. Church, as much as poverty of the Spirit is the the problem and the solution, so are you. You are both the problem and the solution. The problem is we either overestimate our worth or we think that we have no worth. I thought we were talking about poverty of spirit. You become the righteousness of God in Christ. You become a planting of the Lord for the displaying of His splendor. You brought nothing to the table, but you walk away with all the righteousness of God to put on display for the world. They're supposed to see Christ in us. Oh, How many of us could sing childlike songs, let your light shine, but then live an entire year without having won a single convert? How many of us know these Scriptures, but are not willing to get over ourselves and display His splendor? What was the devil's great armory against you? Did he take away your air conditioner? Did you have to struggle for something? The struggle magnifies the power of our God. The struggle gives everyone a chance to see your weakness in His power. The struggle is something to be delighted in. As the brother gave testimony today, on trial before men and yet vindicated by God, His glory sits on the shoulders of men while they're in trials. Unless, of course, your shrugged shoulders make a poor seat. We need to worship Him in our plantings. As the old song said, bloom where you are planted, God can use you where you are. Great joy comes to the desert if it bears a single flower. Church, He put you where you are because He wants to display His splendor. Is it tough? Of course it's tough. What was it before he called you? We act as if our lives in the world were so easy. You've been saved too long. I've not yet gotten over the scars I put on my body during the brief time I was lost. I've been saved now longer than I was alive before I was saved. But that life left its mark. And I remember it. And I will never go back to it. If you walk into a store and you bring them a 30-cent gift card and they give you the entire inventory of the store, you either walk out feeling like you looted the place or you walk out feeling like somebody really must love you. Guys, we're supposed to display something. And it's not hard. The commands of God are not burdensome. I mean, it's hard, but it's not a burden. It's difficult, and yet it's a great joy. Because you know that no matter how despairing their situation, no matter how burned up their situation, no matter how mournful their situation, He did it in you and He can do it in them. But who proves that? Who's the walking advertisement for it? Who's the one that is supposed to be shining the light so that they can see it? Why are we fascinated with flying away during the church's greatest hour? Because we've already done it. Feet are on the earth and mind is somewhere else. In large part, the circus that is called the gospel in this nation has already forgotten about its commission. It's why they can kill babies in our city and we don't care. It's why the divorce rate can be the same in the church as out of the church. We have forgotten that you were saved for a purpose. 
think Wednesday night we read it from Isaiah 43. Called you for my glory. My glory, he says. You should exist for his glory. That means you are not afforded the liberty of God to feel the way that you would like to for a single day. You were not afforded the license from God to do what you want to, even for a single day. You brought nothing to the table and He gave you everything. And He gave it to you for your enjoyment, Paul said to Timothy. So you are free to enjoy all that God has given you. You are free to work for Him every day. It is for freedom that He set you free, He said to the Galatians. There's no bondage and restriction in this unless, of course, you bring it. How about John 15, 8? Another very familiar scripture. This is to my Father's glory. Whose? My Father's glory. That you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. How does God get glory? When you prove. Prove by showing that you are His disciples. So much for religion is an inward thing, a private matter. What a devilish lie. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit. Church, do you want to bear a little fruit or a lot of fruit? I'll say this. My little eight-pound wiener dog, he at least goes after it with all of his heart. An eight-pound dog ate about six pounds worth of food. At least whatever he's into, he goes after it with all of his being. The disparities in him make me hate him and love him all at the same time because he's so much like me. I don't want to get to the end of this race and have given him a couple Jolly Ranchers. A couple fruit-flavored Skittles. It's through His glory that we bear much fruit. And how do you do it? Hey, by the way, what is the root of the word disciples? It's discipline. In Hebrew, they're called Talmudim. The idea is you walk so closely after Jesus that His dust kicks up upon you. What did Jesus' life look like? What does your life look like? That's probably as great a disparity as it was in the great exchange. And yet we're called to close that gap for the displaying of his splendor. First Corinthians six in verse 20. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your. Therefore, honor God with your. Guys, this is not a metaphor. This is, this is not mystical speech. In fact, do you know what this says in the Greek? It says in the Greek, honor God with your body, just like it says it in English. That means that what you do in your very physical dwelling either honors or dishonors God. That means it matters whether or not you use your hands for good or use them for evil. It means it matters what you do with your body every day, despite what popular Christianity says. It matters. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. What's wrong with sexual immorality? You're dishonoring God with your body. What's wrong with every other ungodly emotion? It dishonors God with the very body that He gave you. It's funny, we live in a world where we know that stealing is wrong. To take something that doesn't belong to you is wrong. But we think that we can take from Christ His righteousness and then live with a frown our entire lives and that's not wrong? It will never display the glory of God if we don't live as those who have received the glory of God. How many of you desire to witness Me too, with all of my heart. Maybe like you, maybe like me, you have gone to classes as a child to teach you 
how to witness. And maybe they taught you that you could start in Romans 1.5 and then you could move to Romans 3.23 and then you might share something from Romans 7 and then you could finish the grand and glorious plan of God in Romans 10. Maybe that's what you were taught. Or you could simply display beauty and gladness and praise. Or you could just let people see the disparity between what you were and what you've become in Christ. Or you could actually show that you're a disciple by sharing when the Lord has disciplined you. Maybe you could let your light shine before men that they might honor Him. You know, witnessing has never been so hard. We want our theology to be perfect. We want to make sure that we've shared all of the right words. What if we just honored Him with our body wherever we were? What if at work we worked as working unto the Lord? What if everywhere we went... We believe that we were bought with a price and honored Him in our physical being. How about Philippians 1 and verse 9? And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Do you mean to tell me that when knowledge and depth of insight increase so that your discernment increases and it results in a pure and blameless life filled with the fruit of righteousness, that that glorifies God? We do not learn simply to learn. We don't simply desire to possess Knowledge, that is a Greek concept that has proven fruitless. Stephen Hawking may know more about physical science than any other man on the planet. I really don't know. I just see him quoted all of the time. But he seems to know less about God than my nine-year-old does. Knowledge puffs up. Love was meant to build up and the knowledge of God was supposed to build up your discernment. It was supposed to increase your understanding of His character. It was supposed to fill you with the fruit of righteousness so that God would be glorified through your deeds. If your education outpaces your deeds, it's condemning, not exalting. You know, it's a beautiful thing when you meet new Christians that did not come from the Western Christian world. When they're not doing something that the Scripture says or they're doing something that the Scripture says not to do and you share it in the Scripture with them and they go, oh, and change. At least you realize they simply didn't know. How condemning is it for us to know and ignore when the exchange was so great, when the disparity was so great? For this reason, revisiting poverty of spirit through repentance on a regular basis, actually enhances righteousness. But we're pretty convinced in the church that if you repent often, that it somehow taints righteousness. It's not true. When you repent rarely, it just means that you hide sin often. When you repent frequently, You're allowing the disparity between your ashes and His beauty to be seen by all. It's the displaying of His splendor. I don't like to repent publicly any more than you do. But God gave me a public forum. What am I supposed to do? Did He give you any less public of a forum? Or am I the only one that lives surrounded by the lost? In 2002... I drank too much at a company party. There is no excuse. It was sin. Just outright sin. (laughs) I lost 80 pounds. Was very excited about that. And having lost 80 pounds, could not handle anywhere near the level of alcohol absorption that I could have handled as a really fat guy. 
When you believe you're stronger than you are, it almost always results in humiliation. A great teacher named Hillel said, my humiliation is my exaltation and my exaltation is my humiliation. You should think on that sometime. I was convinced that when I went to every person in my workplace and said, I'm a man of God and I sinned greatly before you and I apologize, that it would ruin my witness. When you hear the end of a story, it makes you feel better about the middle, but remember when you're in the middle of the story, you don't know the end. I got on my knees in my boss's office and asked for her forgiveness. I've never seen guilt and shame come over someone like I did then. And it wasn't me. I had a means to deal with my guilt and shame. I could bring the Lord my ashes. He had already proven His character to me. He would give me something beautiful. They didn't know what to do with their guilt and shame. And so when I talked about mine, instead of hiding it, they were destroyed. They tried to stop me. A good friend named Cal says, Eric, you, did, you didn't do anything wrong. It's okay, you didn't do anything. We all didn't do I said, that's the point. I'm called to be holy. I'm called to be different. And I did exactly what you do. And it's great sin before God. He was broken. He didn't know whether to hug me and console me or hate me. And that's the kind of response the gospel's supposed to leave. Because poverty of spirit is the problem and the solution. In 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 9, I want to share with you a thought that dovetails into the end of days. Aharit Yamim. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power on the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among those who believe. On the day He comes, some will be shut out of His power. But when He comes, He comes to be glorified in His people. We won't teach eschatology. I don't want to take the pressure off of you and off of me. But I want to tell you the very great day, the day of the Lord is about God being glorified in you. It's about your weakness and His strength. Apparently, when things get beyond our ability to endure and we actually endure, it says something about God's glory. What do you think your trials are a practice run for now? What do you think your difficulties are a practice run for now? We're so focused on being saved. I'm going to spend hours talking about it this evening. But what about now? I personally believe that He did save me, He is saving me, and He will save me. Church, the sun rises. I'll read it to you from Habakkuk. Go to Habakkuk 3. Say there when you were there. It's warm in here. I preach a long time. I always have. I probably always will. There's the hum of fans in the background. Many of you got very little sleep last night. Some of you skipped Saturday altogether. Might have been at the hospital with us. Yet if you're going to be here, it isn't being here worth being here. Oh, that we could think of our salvation that way. 24th chapter of Exodus. I'm going to Habakkuk, I promise. 24th chapter of Exodus, God tells Moses, come up on the mountain and be with me on the mountain. It's so redundant that you wonder if God's being redundant. But He knew that we very often stand in a place while our mind is somewhere else. Are you walking through your salvation in that way? 
I know I'm saved, but my mind is on every other thing. You're saved for a reason. I'm going to say if you're in Christ, then be in Christ. (laughs) If you're in Christ, then be deliberate, demonstrative in every possible way. Be in Christ. And when you see a disparity between you and Christ, you can be shamed for about a second and then turn that shame right into glory by exchanging it for the ability to become like Christ. Don't dwell in discontentment. Don't do it. I think the only thing worse than the shame that comes from sinning is staying in shame afterwards. I want to tell you some that are important to the Lord in here. Some of you, it could be so mightily used by God. It's so much not about you that the things that you're struggling with are simply there to keep you from ministering to others. I've been pastoring long enough now that I can tell you my greatest attacks in my personal walk come before your greatest hours of need. It's all aimed at one thing, destroying my confidence when I stand with you. Eroding my ability to hear from God or at least confidence that I can. We need to wise up to the devil's schemes. We need to understand the great exchange and commit ourselves to displaying His glory. Are you in Habakkuk 3? What a beautiful passage. Beautiful song. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. At a time period when wrath is coming, He's asking for a mighty renewal. God came from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and His praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from His hand where His power was hidden. Plague went before Him. Pestilence followed His steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled. The eight old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. On the day that God is visiting His people while the earth is shaking, while mountains are quaking, while things are writhing, His splendor rises like the sun. And who is supposed to display His splendor? I would tell you that there is a hint here. There is a hint at a resurrection here. There is a hint that on the day the living God comes to shake the earth, you will rise in glory. The very resurrection of the dead is the glory of God. But today, you're, you're not physically dead. If the culmination of God's plan is about taking that which literally has no value in the world and making it of the highest eternal value, then what are you practicing for now? I say, let His Son rise upon you. Display His splendor now. Reach into the very depths of God now. When you have a chance to suffer for His name, leave rejoicing, not mourning. Because it displays His splendor. Somebody slaps you on one cheek, look at them and say, may I have another? You know why? Because you can Because you're made a Holy Ghost steal. To the extent that you're willing to recognize your poverty, He will give you His riches. To the extent that you hang on to a poor and miserable principle, you rob yourself of God's riches. That's why poverty is both the problem and the solution. I want to encourage you at this point that you were not called to be an ordinary person. The word mere could be defined as nothing more than what is specified. That's a mere five pounds. That's just a mere child. That's nothing more than the way that it's labeled and identified. Well, if you're ashes, if you're mourning, 
if you're despair, if that's your label, and you are nothing more than that, then you are a mere and ordinary person. But if there's been a spiritual exchange, if you've had an encounter with the king, if he gave you beauty instead of ashes, gladness instead of mourning, praise instead of despair, it points to something more than a mere human. Turn with me to John 10. Say there when you were there. In John 10, let us pick up in verse 22. Then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Friends, the world may not know how to say it, but they are expressing the same thing now. Would the real Christians please stand up? Would the truth please reveal itself? All they've seen is hypocrisy and lies. Those that claim to have the power of God use it to fleece them. Those that claim to have the love of God are full of self-interest. The kingdom has been tainted by carnality. If we could just tell them plainly about the splendor of God as displayed in ordinary men living in extraordinary ways. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe me. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. I'm going to read the whole passage to you and it's going to get worse for you. And it's going to get worse for me. I might have to stand on a phone book to see over the pulpit by the time it's over. We live in a world that says, don't watch what I do. Instead, listen to what I say. My doctrine is perfect. It's flawless. I cross my T's and I dot my I's. I've been working on it and preserving it since Luther himself. What difference does that make if your deeds don't speak for you? When Jesus Christ was asked, tell me plainly, are you the Christ? He essentially said the things that I do have already spoken. Christian, can you say the same? My sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they will follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone Him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? When someone slanders you, can you, like the Apostle Paul, look at them and say, you yourselves know how holy, righteous, and blameless I was when I was among you. We're keen on saying only Jesus could say that, but Paul himself said it. Do you know that the Bible exhorts us to live in such a way that it makes people ashamed to slander us? Do you live in a way that makes them ashamed when they slander you? Or in a way that makes them right when they slander you? Because one thing's constant. Slander. You can't do a thing about what people say. But your actions either make them right or wrong. We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. You as nothing more than an ordinary man. You as nothing more than what's been specified as human being or claiming to be something more. How did Jesus rest His defense on what He did because it displayed the Father's glory? Where do we rest our defense? Oh, we say, you know, uh, I believe in this doctrine. It's been expounded on by many great men through the centuries. It's true. I've even memorized it. But can you rest 
on the deeds that were prompted by that doctrine. They can say I preach a works-based salvation if they want to. But I tell you, I've been working for the Lord ever since I truly got saved. I brought nothing to him of value. But I'm determined that what he gets out of this is that I will spend my life displaying his splendor, showing the disparity between the man I was and the man he's making me into. I will spend my life showcasing his power and my weakness. I hope to give my life showing his power, working through a weak miserable human being that he happened to make glad, happy, and praising. Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? You should read Psalm 83 sometime. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Hear this, church. This would be a great bumper sticker. Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. In all the years I've seen catchy Christian phrases. I've never seen that one. Could it be something stolen our confidence in Christ's power to work through our weakness? Could it be that we've settled and said sinful things like this is just how I am? Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does, but if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I and the Father are one. We ought to be able to look at the world around us and say, when you look at me, you see dirt. The same stuff you're made out of, and it wars with me, but that's not all I am. The Father is in me. And if you watch closely, you'll see His splendor on display. Because when everybody here gets fired, I'll still have a smile. My provision never came from this place. When the ball doesn't bounce my way and all my cookies crumble, you will still see the eternal power of God because I came to the table with nothing. And what I have is that which He's given me. And you can sing the song, the world can't take it away, but let me ask you, have they? Might be time to regather ourselves. In Genesis 2, 7... God breathed into dirt. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. What did the man bring to the table? Dirt. Dirt. That's about all you have to offer him. But when he breathes in you, you become something more. And he expects something more. He did not speak to the dirt and say, you will rule, you will multiply. He never spoke to the dirt and said it would do anything except war against the man's efforts. But when he breathed in the dirt, it became a living being and he expected ruling and reigning, the multiplying of God's image all over the planet. He expected the man to carry his glory on the planet. He expected him to contend with the powers of darkness, not to return to the dirt. Could we put John 3 on the screen? Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. What spoke for Jesus? His deeds. Do you want to be like Jesus? Are you the body of Jesus? Next verse. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You look carefully. Born again has become a catchphrase in the Christian church, but it would just as rightly be translated born from heaven or born from above. 
I want to tell you that mankind was dirt and God breathed into it. And we quickly went back to the dirt we came out of. But He is able to breathe on you again and make you more than a mere man. He can fill you with His presence so that you are more than ashes and mourning and despair. You become something altogether beautiful. Something altogether full of praise. Something altogether blessed by God, used by God, meant to multiply His image all over the planet for the displaying of His glory. This is why He saved you. He saved you because He wants to use you. He saved you because He cares about those sitting around you. Last time I'm saying it today. This was not about you. This was about the entire world that He loved. And you have a part to play in it. You couldn't offer Him anything for your salvation, but because He saved you, you can offer Him your obedience for the displaying of His splendor. It's time that He gets what's due Him. He owes, He owns the obedience of the nations. We owe Him that. Paul called it the obedience that comes from faith. Your obedience will display His splendor in the areas that it's hardest for you to be obedient. That's why you don't get to pick what you do. He does. If I picked it, it would be water skiing for Jesus, snow skiing for Jesus, shooting a 45 for Jesus, eating tacos for Jesus. He gets to pick the area. And I get to offer Him my obedience for His splendor. You can say, but Lord, you picked me for something that I'm not any good at. And He says, I know you weren't any good at anything when I picked you. But watch this. <laughs> it changes everything. It'll change everything. I can be having the worst day in the world, but a little breath of God on me. It'll change everything. I can not have a message, but if He just breathed on me a little bit, it'll come immediately. Could we stand to our feet?